0: Let's worship in the Word now with Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, we are at verse 13. We'll read verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out In the opening of this magnificent sermon, the Lord Jesus taught the Beatitudes. We saw last week that he called his disciples, his citizens of his kingdom, to essentially be people of unusual character. You are poor in spirit and mournful and meek and merciful and pure-hearted and peacemakers who long for the righteousness of God and then in turn are persecuted for that righteousness you receive these are kingdom characteristics which with every one of those unusual characteristics came a gospel promise you will be comforted you will inherit the earth you will obtain mercy you'll see god you'll be called god's children and be part of his heavenly kingdom so the beatitudes say essentially this is who you are And it gives us reassurance that all along the way, you are blessed by God for who you are. Now, beginning in our text, the emphasis shifts from what you are to what you do. Or said another way, the the citizens of Christ's kingdom are to be people of uncommon character, but they're also people with an uncommon calling. But for about 2,000 years of history, there's been an ongoing internal debate among Christians to understand what is Christianity's relationship to the world supposed to look like. On one extreme, there are those who embrace an isolationist view. They say, well, the Bible teaches to be separate. For example, in Leviticus 20, God told the nation of Israel, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the other people and in this isolationist view men join monasteries and women join convents and Christians form little communities out in the uh, hidden away in the mountains or in forests where nobody else will see them and in the process they have little or no influence on the world on the other extreme some Christians see our relationship with the world as the goal is to be as much like the world as possible in order to win them over. They won't quote Leviticus, but they'll quote Paul and say, well, the apostle Paul said that he was all things to all people. To the Jews, he would be Jews. To the Gentiles, he would be Gentiles. To the weak, he would become as weak. So that he, he says in all things, he will be to all men that he by all means might save some. And they say this means Christianity's relationship with the world is to dress like them and act like them and talk like them in hopes of winning them over. At which point we have to ask if there's no difference between you and them, what are you winning them over to? Both of those extremes manage to misuse and misapply the very scriptures they use to defend their position. And both of those extremes ignore the simple message of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. The Christian character described in verses 3 through 12 that we looked at last week is the basis for the Christian calling which Jesus gives to his disciples in our text this morning. What is our relationship with the world? What is it that your life is good for? It is to know that this wicked society is plagued with darkness and decay and disciples of Jesus are called to preserve and illuminate the world around us for God's glory. I know that was a lot, so let me say it again. This wicked society is plagued with darkness and decay and the disciples of Jesus are called to preserve and illuminate the world around us for God's glory to prove this point Messiah King Jesus uses two simple illustrations in verses 13 through 16 he says you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world and in one sense these are timeless illustrations there is no society in history that is unfamiliar with the benefits of salt and light but in another way, we need to step back into the first century mind of his audience in order to grasp these timeless examples in a world without refrigerators and freezers, without boxes of Morton salt stacked up on the grocery store shelves, we don't have light they didn't have light switches or LED bulbs. What is it that Jesus means when he says, "You are the salt of the earth"? and you are the light of the world. Well, first, salt deals with decay in verse 13. The first example Jesus uses for this unusual calling on the life of a believer is to deal with decay. Look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Salt was relatively easily obtainable for Jesus' audience in those days from a nearby source called the Dead Sea. The reason the Dead Sea is dead is because it contains about 10 times as much salt as the oceans do. And so to harvest this salt from the Dead Sea, what they would do is they would go to the water's edge and they would dig out a long canal along the water's edge so that the water would flow into it. Then they would close that off so that the water was stuck and then they would just let the sun evaporate the water and what's left is voila, you've got salt. But you've also got a bunch of other stuff in there too. Now for us, Salt is basically just used to flavor food. I mean, y'all, I can even manage to choke down asparagus if I put enough salt on it. But in Bible times, it was used for much more than that. One of the things that I loved to do when I actually taught a semester-long class at the college just on the Sermon on the Mount. I would always assign a paper to the students requiring them to explain what is it that Jesus means when he says, you are the salt of the earth. The reason I assign the paper is because it requires reading the text and using your brain. Students love to try a shortcut, right? They would go to their favorite Bible program. They would type in the word salt. They would bring up every passage that has the word salt in it. And so I've collected over the course of a few semesters how many strange explanations students gave for what Jesus means you're the salt of the earth. There are many ways that salt was used in biblical culture. You don't need to know all these, so don't try to write them down in your notes, okay? They would point out, well, salt was used to flavor food. I do not know of a single student that I ever had that did not manage to quote the rhetorical question from Job chapter 6, verse 6, which says, can flavorless food be eaten without salt? Is there any taste in the white of an egg? As if that explains the whole Sermon on the Mount. You're the salt of the earth. You are what makes the earth taste good. That's probably not what Jesus means. Some point out the presence of salt encourages thirst. I actually love, I had a video game long ago where you ran your own theme park and you could use this concept. You could add more salt to the french fries at the theme park and manage to sell more sodas and lemonades in the process. So some commentaries will even say, well, we should encourage the world to thirst for Jesus. That's how we're the salt of the earth. In Isaiah, salt was added to a cattle, the cattle's feed. In Leviticus, the meat offerings included salt. Sharing salt in Scripture can be seen as a, is a means of hospitality. So in, in Ezra chapter four it says we have the maintenance of the king's palace, and it literally says we share the salt of the palace. It was symbolic of keeping a promise. So in Numbers and 2nd Chronicles both mention a, a covenant of salt. Newborn children were rubbed with salt for its antiseptic qualities in Ezekiel chapter 16. Salt has healing properties so rubbing salt in a wound might be a means of saying you are causing pain but it's also theoretically going to help it was valuable that it was part of the pay for a roman soldier we actually have a saying based on that still today that person is not worth their salt right and that's where that comes from it was part of how a roman soldier was paid Small amounts of salt could be added to the ground in order to encourage plant growth. Large amounts of salt could be added to the ground in order to eliminate plant growth. It could be used for a catalyst to start fires. Salt is so common and useful that all of those are reasonable uses of salt, but it doesn't seem any of them are likely the meaning of Jesus's illustration. Jesus is speaking of the quality of salt to preserve food. Salt acts as a preservative when it is rubbed into meat in order to prevent its decay. We don't ordinarily think of salt that way because we're used to driving down to Kroger and perusing the freezer section and bringing home some meat and putting it in the refrigerator. That, of course, was entirely foreign to the people of the first century. Jesus' audience knew that this is what he meant. Just imagine that you have a, a nice leg of lamb that you know when they butchered that lamb, they didn't necessarily eat the whole thing on the same day. So let's say it's Tuesday and you butcher a lamb, and yet you want to have a nice leg of lamb for Sunday afternoon dinner. What do you do with it? You can't put it in the fridge. They wouldn't say, ah, we'll just set it in the windowsill until, you know, Sunday rolls around. They would salt cure their meat so that it wouldn't decay. Most often, the Jews to whom Jesus was speaking here would have used salt in order to preserve fish for some time. That's the picture Jesus is giving here. It's not so much... You're the flavor of the world than it is you are what keeps the world from decaying like a piece of rotting meat. Now just think of the implications of this because the Beatitudes are so countercultural that some people would read those Beatitudes in verses 3 through 12 and, and they, would, they would conclude that his disciples are so different. They're supposed to be separatists. They're supposed to isolate themselves they're supposed to live a a monastic lifestyle to be hermits out there hiding from the world but now with this illustration jesus proves exactly the opposite is true how is it that salt can help prevent decay salt only helps prevent decay by contact unless we're doing that jesus says you have lost your savor you have lost your usefulness and by the way The word here for flavor doesn't really mean taste. It's this Greek word moreno. It means to be made foolish or to become ineffective. If salt loses its preservative quality, then Jesus said it is good for nothing except, as was the custom, to use it to line the walking paths to keep down vegetation. There is no other way to preserve the preservative. So he says, how will it be seasoned? Or with the King James Version, wherewith will it be salted? And the answer is obvious. It, it can't be. Now, some people, it's funny how many commentaries and preachers here will point out that, well, salt can't really lose its flavor. It can't ever stop being salt. Sodium chloride is always going to be sodium chloride, as if Jesus is trying to teach a chemistry lesson here. The salt that they used in their day as it, as it collected and the, the water evaporated and they, they collected the salt, it had a lot of other stuff in it too. And so it was possible for them to have this substance that they called salt and it was mostly salts, but if that salt dissolved from it, they still have this stuff that they call salt, but it won't do what salt's supposed to do. It won't preserve anything. And so Jesus isn't trying to teach a chemistry lesson here. He's simply saying that the true righteousness of his disciples, when it is in touch, when it is in contact with the world, is going to slow moral decay. Now some folks will tell you that Christianity has not really done this throughout history. Now we are told and pointed out that history is rife with these examples of war and strife due to Christianity and certainly there were wicked people who claimed the name of Christ while working contrary to Christ's teachings. But what would the world you know look like if not for the Christian faith? Great painters of history painted Christian themes, great Musical composers dedicated their works to God's glory. The university systems developed by Christians. The creation of hospitals were done in the name of Jesus. More recently, the abolition of slavery and the promotion of civil rights were fueled by Christians. And the reality is the very complaints made against Christianity would never be made if not for the influence of Christianity. For very few people will admit that even as they accuse others of hypocrisy and violence in the name of Jesus, it is only the teaching of Scripture that has ever told them that hypocrisy and violence is wrong. What would your life be like without the direct involvement of Christ or the influence of his followers? I don't think you would like the answer. The teaching of Jesus and the good news that he saves sinners has to some extent restrained the moral decay of every society in which Jesus is proclaimed. In fact, I want to share a quote with you from a secular historian. He is a non-Christian named Tom Holland. And, And by the way, this is probably getting more into philosophy than it is theology, so feel free to ignore this part. But... Tom Holland rejected Christianity in his youth, but he loved the ancient Roman and Greek stories enough that he became a historian. And in the process of being a historian and studying, he learned just how immoral those societies were and how it is Christianity that has shaped the basic morality of society in areas like human dignity. So here is this quote from Tom Holland. Quote, almost everything that explains the modern world and the way the West has then moved on to shape concepts like international law or concepts of human rights, all those kinds of things. Ultimately, they do not go back to Greek philosophers and they don't go back to Roman imperialism. They go back to Paul. His letters, I think, along with the four gospels are the most influential, the most impactful, the most revolutionary writings that have ever emerged from the ancient world. So as much as the whole world despises the moral values of Christianity, the world as a whole is indebted to the morality of Jesus Christ. As the message of Christ is proclaimed in the world and modeled in the lives of individual Christians, it has had a dramatic impact on that world. So even as the Apostle Paul wrote that, wickedness and deception will grow worse and worse it is the ordinary display of Christian character which slows that display in society and you then are here for a reason as the disciples of Jesus you are the salt of the earth if the Lord did not have a purpose on earth as part of his divine plan then we might as well, at the moment that we're saved, just be automatically translated into his presence. But instead, we are left here with a purpose in this world because we are meant to be in contact with it. You realize that contact is a very specific part of Jesus' example. As we said, salt is not going to preserve meat unless it is rubbed into it and made contact with it. Jesus' example here addresses those two extremes we mentioned earlier. Right, Is a Christian's relationship with the world to be as separated as as possible so that you're hermits for the sake of Christ? Or is it to be so much like the world in order that you can win the world by being like them? Neither of those. Y'all, just like salt rubbed into meat, we are called to be in contact with, with the world but that contact is one of difference it is one of distinction and so jesus says if the salt itself is rotting how is it going to preserve anything the lord is our example in this he was a a friend of sinners without becoming one he set that example and then prayed for us in john chapter 17 pleading with the father to help us to live in the world and yet not be of the world. Our calling to be the salt of the earth people is to be in close contacts with the lives of the people around us. We need to be seen by them and heard by them and felt by them. We need to be declaring the gospel of Jesus to them even while we're displaying the goodness of Jesus for them. What is it that your life is good for? According to Jesus, you are here to deal with the decay by being the salt of the earth. That's his first illustration. In the second illustration, we see light disperses darkness. Look at verse 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Listen, y'all, for any biblically literate Christian the first sentence of verse 14 ought to stop us in our tracks. When we start reading verse 14, our sort of theological braking system ought to lock up our wheels and bring us to a grinding, screeching halt, asking, well, wait a minute, that can't be right. What does this mean that we are the, the light of the world? The problem, of course, is that there are the words... Right there in black and white. If you have a red letter Bible, it's in red and white. These are the words of the Lord Jesus himself. But also in red and white in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus stands in the temple and proclaims that I am the light of the world and whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. And so how can Jesus say, I am the light of the world, and then also say, you are the light of the world. Somehow, both of those have to be right, unless you want to argue Jesus is wrong, in which case, that's a whole different sermon. So let's look at the two ways he uses this second illustration to see if it helps us make sense of this. The first way he uses it in verse 14, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. For whatever it's worth, I like to think in my sanctified imagination that as Jesus is up preaching on one mountain, that perhaps there is just such a city nearby on one of the other hillsides that Jesus could have pointed to as an example. We don't know that, but I like to imagine it. Very likely the audience to whom Jesus is speaking here would have thought about the city of Jerusalem it was built at the top of Mount Zion you build a city on the side of a mountain and the people who are on the other side of the mountain it is invisible to them you build it in the valley or in the forest and you don't see it until you're right on top of it but on the top of a mountain at the top of a hill it is evident it is visible the buildings that the cities would be made of in that day were of dried mortar. It was very light in color and they would stand out against sort of the surrounding plant life. So just try to picture this for a moment. You are, you are traveling along the road and you've got the sun behind you and there is this mountain in front of you and there is a city on top of the mountain. How is it that you see the light colored buildings of that city? Well, you see it as it reflects the sunlight back into your eyes. And Jesus says, you are like a city on a hill. You are clearly visible to all those who are traveling. You are are not to be hidden, and you are to reflect that light. In his second illustration, or the second way he uses this illustration of you are the light of the world, is also about reflective light. Look at verse 15. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So the audience in Jesus' day would have understood these examples perfectly, just like they would have understood about salt's preservative qualities because they didn't have Kroger or refrigerators. They understood about lighting a house with a candle because they didn't have Utility companies and light switches. By the way, if you needed another reason to be jealous of the disciples who walked with Jesus, they never in their lives got an Ameren bill. (laughs) The light-colored mortar that made up the outside of uh, buildings that would reflect the light, it was that same mortar that was on the inside of the building. And it would reflect the light of a candle. So they would take a candle and they would put it on a a lampstand and they wouldn't set it in like the the center of the room. They would take it and they would place it on on a lampstand up toward the corner of a room. So just picture over here, and this is a bad example because I'm pointing at a shadow, right? But just picture if you have a light up there in the corner, the light is reflecting off the walls and the ceiling. And this is what Jesus is describing is that you put the candle up on a lampstand and you set it and it gives light to the whole room. So now think about this. Why does Jesus, who is the light of the world, say to his disciples, you are the light of the world. The city that is on a hill. You are the, the candle that is on a... Uh, A candlestick or a lampstand. You are the examples of reflected light. Jesus is the source of light. He's the light of the world. And we are the light of the world so long as the world sees us and sees the reflection of Jesus in us. As you surely know, one of the mandatory functions of a preacher in any sermon is to make application of the message. It isn't just to say, well, here's some important facts or a great illustration, right? That you have to make application. It needs to be direct in telling the the listeners what it is that the message means and also what it means for them to do. So in verse 16, Jesus moves on to the application of these two illustrations, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. What is it that your life is good for? Well, here's the answer. Let your light so shine before men. That word so there really means like that or in that way. Just like a a city on a hill, just like a candle on a lampstand, Go forward in your life in a way that your life reflects the light of Jesus Christ before men. Now y'all, we have to be careful here because it would be very easy to start preaching the exact opposite meaning from what Jesus has. This is a very simple command to live in a way that others may see our good works and yet... In just a few moments after this, in this sermon, as soon as the next chapter opens, Jesus is going to start talking about those who give charitably in order to be seen, who fast publicly in order to be seen, who pray loudly in order to be heard and gather attention. And he's going to call those people hypocrites because they're just doing it to call attention to themselves. I'll go over at chapter 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Or in chapter 6, verse 5. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So are we supposed to be seen or not? How can Jesus say in chapter 5, verse 16, make sure that they see your good works, and then later in Matthew 6, don't do things to be seen by others. The difference is in your heart. It is not the goal of Christian life to be seen so that people can see How good you are. The goal is to be seen reflecting the light of Jesus so that people would see how good He is. That they would see Him and that they would glorify Him. Listen again to verse 16 of our text. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We have to guard the motives of our heart and at every moment ask ourselves, is this good work designed to bring glory to God or to bring glory to me? If I'm giving money, is it because I want to do it to get credit or because I want to help? If I'm lending a hand, is it because I want those people to know that God loves them or do I want them to give me recognition? And so Jesus says here, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works. And he doesn't say, and then give you a pat on the back because it's well-deserved. Do those good works so that men would see it and bring, it would bring glory to your Father in heaven. The best way to ensure that God receives the glory is to be continually giving God the glory. Make it known in your deeds and in your words that glorifying God is the purpose of your life. This is going to dispel one of the silly notions that has become so popular. For those of you who were here on Wednesday, we mentioned it. There is a popular saying, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Listen, words are always necessary. We understand the purpose of that saying is to always be showing the effect of the gospel through your actions. But even the best actions without giving glory to God will ultimately never transmit the truth that people desperately need to know. And so you need to speak with your words and give glory to God. So if you give money to someone in need, be sure to say Jesus loved me and gave himself for me if you help someone who is down tell them look God has been so good to me and he asks that I be good to you or learn to say I am merciful because I have been shown so much mercy I am forgiving forgiving because I've been forgiven there is no good thing in me except what the Lord Jesus does through me And set our hearts and minds to always seek God's glory. And then we'll begin to understand that it means more than simply just looking for opportunities, but that every moment of your life is an opportunity to glorify God. If you are a disciple of Jesus, this is what you are here for. It is to be salt and to be light. It's good for, your, your life is good for glorifying God through your good works and through your good words. But that calling is to be out in the world. As you're out there in your jobs, or in the doctor's appointment, or in the classroom, or even if you're out there on vacation, you know, you're, you're even out there in the world when you are sitting in your home with some family member who needs to see light and, and needs the salt of Christ in their life the the sovereign God who saved you has also wisely placed you in the very circumstances of life so that your life is an opportunity to bring salt and light to those around you so we do need to be in the world we need to be the salt dealing with decay we need to bring be the light that reflects Jesus and disperses darkness. And if that is not happening, then the fault is with us. There was a writer named John Stott in his book on the Sermon on the Mount who says it like this, and I, I'm essentially paraphrasing him. If you walk into a dark house at night, you wouldn't start blaming the house for being dark. That's just what happens when the sun goes down. You'd ask, why isn't the light on? If meat was going bad, you wouldn't blame the meat for rotting. That's just what happens when bacteria grows unchecked. You'd ask, why wasn't this salted? In the same way, if you see society becoming more and more corrupt like a dark night or stinking fish, why would you go about blaming society? It's only doing what fallen men do when human depravity remains unchecked. What we should ask ourselves are, Where are the Christians who are supposed to be salt and light in this society? Finally, I just want to offer a word to those here who don't know Jesus as their Savior, whose life has not been changed but desperately needs to be changed. As Jesus spoke to his followers in this text, he told them to be Salt and light, the followers of Jesus are the ones being taught in this text. But his words also mean something to you. Don't these words describe your life and your world? As you look at your life, can you not see that it is decaying quickly, that you live in a rotting world? Doesn't it seem like you are surrounded by darkness? It doesn't have to go on that way. Jesus has the power to stop that decay and set your life in a new direction. He is the light of the world who can illuminate the darkness with the light of life. Even though there is nothing good about us, God so loved us that he sent his son to redeem us. He died on the cross taking the punishment we deserve. After three days, he rose from the grave promising everlasting life to all who believe. And if you want to leave behind a world of darkness and a world of decay, you need to ask God to forgive you of your sins and ask him to help you turn away from those sins, leaving them behind and setting your life in a new direction through faith in Jesus Christ. You need to believe in Jesus. Simply trust. He is the son of God who has died and rose again to save you from sin and hell and to give you everlasting life in him. And then and only then does he save you from the darkness and decay of this world and you can be salt and light. This wicked society is plagued with darkness and decay. And it is the disciples of Jesus who are called to preserve and illuminate the world around us for God's glory by faith in him and living in him.